Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back. Parsha Perspectives for today. Our analysis of Parsha Schukas, with an emphasis on trying to extract insights and lessons and inspiration for today. I want to thank our generous Parsha series sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Le'ilu Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. If you've not yet joined our one-on-one campaign, one dollar a day of tzedakah, one minute a day of Torah learning, please do so. You can find it online at brsonline.org slash one and one, brsonline.org slash one and one. It's for Afua Shlema, Esther Tila, Bas Ariel Tzipora, for Esti Moskowitz, all those who are ill, may they have a speedy and a painless and a complete Rafua Shlema. We're on page 838 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, Parshas Chukas. One note tomorrow, 10 minutes of meaning and living with Amuna will be streamed live online, but not in person. So live online, but not in person. Tomorrow only, then we're back in person next week. Parshas Chukas, Vaydaber Shema Moshe V'yalaron Lemor. Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the Chok of the Torah. Asher Tziva Hashem Lemor, that God commanded. Daberol B'nei Yisrael V'yichu Elecha Parah Aduma. What is that Chok? What is the Chok that God commanded? That you take for yourself a Parah Aduma Tamima. Take a completely perfect red cow with no blemish. Asher ein ba mum, asher lo aleha aleha ol. It has no blemish, and it never worked. And these are some of the criteria the Mishnayos and Para elaborate on exactly what are the qualifications and criteria to be a Para Aduma in order to be able to in order to be able to purify the impure. So even before we delve into Psukim themselves, a few words of a few words of introduction. Let's start with a Sichos Musar of Chaim Shmulevitz. The great Chaim Shmulevitz says the following. Rashi, Zos Chukas HaTorah Shatziva, this is the Chok of the Torah, says Rashi, Lefi Shasatan V'umos HaOlam Monin Yisrael, Lomar, Maha Mitzvah Zos, the Satan and the non-Jewish nations of the world, they come at the Jewish people and they say, what is this mitzvah? Lefi Chach Kosev Bachuka, Gzerahim Milfanai, Ein Lecha Rishus Laharer Acharel. Stop trying to comprehend. Stop trying to understand. Stop trying to analyze. Simply submit and surrender. Recognize this is the will of Hashem. You do not have permission. You do not have license to demand, to seek, to understand. The Archaim HaKadosh is bothered. Lama Kasva HaTorah Balashan Zos Chukas HaTorah. Para Aduma, of course, is a chok. A chok is a mitzvah that defies understanding or explanation. A chok is a mitzvah where we, Hashem says, jump, and we say, how high? Chok. So why not just say, this is the chok of para aduma. This is the chok of tumantara. What do you mean, zos chukas ha-Torah? It's a little grandiose. It's a little large. This is the chok of the whole Torah. Shirut said, zos chukas ha-Torah, zos chukas ha-Para. What does it mean to every mitzvah to call a Torah kula? And then he adds, says we have no other conclusion to reach other than that if you fulfill, if you obey, if you are obedient to this mitzvah, this chok, it is as if you fulfilled the entire Torah. The whole Torah is subsumed, is included, zos ha-Torah. If you accede to this chok, then... Because Baruch the Almighty treats us as if we kept the whole Torah. How? Why? It's one mitzvah, the 613. How could one out of the 613, our allegiance, our loyalty, our observance of this one mitzvah, how could it count as if we kept all 613? So Rechai Shalavitz explains as follows. 
We've said this every year, Pashas Chukas. This is a very clear understanding of why the Chok here in this context means so much and makes so much sense. You see, if Yechevet asks me to do something, and it makes a lot of sense to me, it's for us both. It's rational, I understand it, comprehend it, I buy into it, and I understand why it benefits us as a family, including me. When I do that thing, Am I doing it for the relationship or am I doing it for me? Doing it for me. But if or when she says, could you do X? And I say, I don't know, I understand what you're talking about. I don't know why I have to do that. I don't know why I have to do it now. I don't know why we need to do it at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't benefit me. I don't believe it benefits the family. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. She says, okay, that's fine, nice. Will you do it anyway? The entire relationship the entire relationship is subsumed into how we answer and respond in those moments. Because if we only participate, if we only accept, if we only take action and do when it makes sense, when we see the benefit for us, that we're not really invested in a relationship with the other, we only care about ourselves. But when we're willing to do it even when it makes no sense to us, when we're willing to do it even when we don't see how it benefits us, when we're willing to do it because the other party says, just do it because I asked, then it in fact reflects on all the other things that we do, that they're not only because we see the benefit. That the whole relationship is informed and animated by a devotion, by a loyalty, by a commitment to want to make the other party happy. The Rambam writes in The Rambam, when he's defining not only a Jewish attitude towards mitzvahs, but the non-Jewish approach to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, the Rambam writes, a person shouldn't do it because they feel compelled, because they comprehend or understand. They shouldn't do it because it makes sense or it enriches. They should do it because the Rebona Shalom Almighty says, jump, and we say, how high? He says, do, and we say, we're in. So it is specifically in the moments where it defies comprehension, and it defies understanding, and we're incapable of it making sense, that's when we reflect back on everything, on the total, on all that is involved. It is in those moments that define the entire, the entire relationship. You know, the Medrash tells us that when Avram Avinu said, when Avram Avinu remarks to Hashem with tremendous modesty and humility, he says, I'm dust and I'm earth, I'm a nothing. I'm nobody. With tremendous humility and modesty, he turns to Hashem and he says, you're in charge, you're in control, I submit and surrender to you. And I, me, I'm dust and I'm earth, I'm a nothing at all. The Medrash says, Chazal say, it's a Gemara Chulun Peiches. The Gemara Chulun Peiches says, Avram Avinu in that moment was rewarded with two mitzvos. What mitzvos were he given? Para Aduma, because there's Efer HaPara, and the mitzvah of sota, because the mayim arim, the concoction, the cocktail that the woman who had infidelity or is accused of infidelity, that she drinks in order to test whether in fact she violated that boundary, it collects from the dust, the earth of the floor of the Beis HaMikdash. That is one of the ingredients of this concoction. So afer and afar, ash and dust and earth, Avram Avinu, by saying, all I am is ash and dust, I am nothing, in the merit of the humility and the modesty that he showed to God by saying that, his children, his progeny, we are rewarded 
with the two mitzvahs that include ash and earth, namely Eferapara and the Mesota. Okay, so is that just a cute play on words? It's the same ingredients, the same substance, so therefore it's a cute play on words. There's something there, I haven't figured it out, I'll challenge you to think about it, that both, both um, Para Aduma and the Mesota are, are mysterious, but more than just mysterious, they're paradoxes. When it comes to the Para Aduma, the pure person who sprinkles the ash on the impure, the impure become pure, and the pure become impure. It's a paradox. In fact, Shlomo HaMelech said that's part of Amarti, Shlomo HaMelech said, I want to become smart, I want to gain from its wisdom, but it was too beyond, even for me. Shlomo HaMelech says, the wisest of all people, of all men, why? Because of this paradox. If it's capable of purifying the impure, how can it make the pure impure? It's a paradox, it makes no sense. But similarly with the Sota, we see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows his name to be erased. In the, in the pursuit of holiness, he allows the unholy act of his name being erased. So there's something there about the paradox, maybe, and the connection Avram Avinu. But there's a much more simple explanation, a much more simple understanding. Because what do these two mitzvahs have in common? The Sota and the case of Avram Avinu, the Para Aduma. In both, there's something strange, there's something unusual, there's something that makes no sense, there's something that we don't understand. Paraduma, the paradox we just mentioned. Why should this work? Why do the pure become, the impure become pure, the pure become impure? It makes no sense whatsoever. And the same is true with the, with the Sota. She's tested and there's drink and God's name is erased. It's mysterious, it's peculiar, it's enigmatic, it makes no sense. And yet, the willingness to submit and to accept and to participate in two mitzvahs is a reflection ultimately of humility. When Avram Avinu expressed and affirmed and stated that humility, Hashem rewarded with two mitzvahs that are all about humility, that are all about submission and acceptance, that are all about a willingness to forfeit our understanding. I don't have to understand. It doesn't have to make sense to me. It doesn't have to be rational. God, if you are the omnipotent, infinite being, and more importantly, even if you were finite, if I want to be involved in a relationship with you, I don't need to understand. I don't have the expectation of understanding. I don't demand to understand. But I'm committed and I'm devoted even when I don't. The reward for Anochi, Afar Ve'efer, the reward for Avram Avinu saying that I'm dust and ash, the reward for that was, the reward for that was, these two mitzvahs that include the humility of not understanding, that include the humility of of not understanding. Which brings us to another insight. I think that brings our parsha to a halt. And with this, we'll conclude the introduction and get into the Pesukim themselves. But I think this introduction is very, very important. Our parsha is very unusual for a number of reasons. First of all, we don't appreciate it when we read it. But do you know how many years it spans? How many years our parsha includes? We know that Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people, they wander the desert for how many years? 40 years. 40 years. A year for every day that the spies came back and gave the negative report. 40 years. Our Parsha includes and spans, our simple Parsha alone, Chukas, 38 of those 40 years. 38. When we read the book of Bamidbar, we get the sense that they were an incorrigible people, always complaining nonstop. And in some ways they were. I mentioned this past Shabbos in the Drasha. 
and inside Rabbi Yechezkel Abramsky, the Chazan Yechezkel, Rabbi Moskowitz told me that how could it be this Dordea, this generation, who had the greatest revelation of all time, who lived and saw the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea, who stood at the base of Har Sinai and they heard God give the first two of the, of the Decalogue, of the Aserah Sandibros, this generation who saw, who experienced, who had a revelation unlike any other, this is the most incorrigible, this is the most negative, this is the biggest group of complainers. So the Chazin Yechazka, Yechazka says, you know, you only complain to the one that you think is in charge or in control. You're standing in Publix, you're standing in Costco, something is wrong, something's upsetting you, you want something fixed, you don't turn to a stranger and start complaining to them because there's nothing they do about it. Who do you ask for? Who do you demand to see? The manager. You have a challenge with an airline. This is not a hypothetical. <laughs> you're at the airport or you have a problem, your flight's been canceled, it's been delayed, your seat has been switched, whatever of the myriad of other problems happens. You don't just talk to the other person in line at the airport. You don't talk to the other person paying $30 for a bottle of water in the store at the airport and start complaining, how could it be? And you need to fix this. They look at you and say, I need to, what are you talking about? Go speak to a manager. You only complain to the person you think is in control. You only complain to the one you think is in charge. You only complain to the manager. So where there's a nation of complainers, yes. Is complaining a a um, attractive quality or a good quality? No, most definitely not. We need to stop and remove and purge that tendency or that character from ourselves to never be complainers. But is complaining a contradiction to the revelation they had experienced? Says Rav Yechai at least by complaining, you know what they were saying? Hashem, we believe you're the manager, so we've got some complaints. So on the one hand, I'm not interested in your complaints. On the other, they know he's the manager. They know he's the supervisor. They know he's in charge. They know he's in control. So when you read the book of Bamidbar, you get the sense, you get this feeling, all 40 years they were miserable. All they did is complain, which of course begs the question later, the Pasuk that we invoke on the Yom and the Raim, the Kishparcho says, Ah, oh, I remember those 40 years, they were delicious. They were amazing. We were in love. It was romantic. You read that and you go, excuse me? They were amazing? They were miserable. You know, this reminds me today. My kids, all kids, they make these video stars. You go on a family trip, a vacation. They take little video snippets and they weave it together to be a video to music. Or you've got a picture frame in your house, a digital picture frame, and it's beautiful pictures. And you look at life and you say, wow, that trip was amazing. And it is but it conveniently edits out the complaints and the fights and the delays and being late and the struggles and it just looks like utopian and bliss. So that's Hashem. It's a beautiful insight there too that Hashem invokes selective memory. These little video stars and these picture frames and these picture albums that we make, that's the way we're meant to live life. Don't hold on to all of the bad moments. Take snapshots and live with selective memory. It's really healthy to live with selective memory. So anyway, 38 years in our Pasha, 38 years, the events from the beginning of that time period to the end, but very little from the majority of those years. So the point is they were not complaining most of the years. It just feels that way because of the way. So the Pasha begins with the most mysterious myths in the Torah, the Paraduma, and this is the paradigm of a chukim, and that's why it's called Chukas HaTorah. And that's the answer to the Yorachayim, we didn't finish. Why is it called Zoschukas HaTorah? Not Zoschukas HaTahara, Zoschukas HaPara, because 
our attitude to all mitzvahs, even the ones we understand, is revealed by our attitude to the one we don't. It's a reflection of our embrace of the total Torah. This is the quintessential chok. Shlomo Melech says, I didn't understand it. I'm the smartest, the wisest. I've got the highest IQ. I killed it on the SATs. I got into every school I applied to. Shlomo Melech says, I'm the smartest person. And I didn't understand. Why is it that the ashes of a perfectly red heifer, unblemished, have a purifying effect, except for the person who sprinkles them, they become impure. It's a, it's a paradox. It makes no sense. It's a make no sense. Good. That's the beginning of the parsha. Fast forward. What's the other major part of our parsha? Although there's so much in this parsha, we'll never get to. It's action-packed. Is the story of Memoriva. Miriam dies. It was in her merit we had the Be'er Miriam, the well. Therefore, the well dried up. The water fountain stopped working. The faucet was no longer producing water, and the people complained, shockingly. And Hashem tells Moshe, go speak to the rock. But Moshe doesn't speak to the rock. What does he do? He hits the rock. We'll see if we have time to analyze this story a little. Hashem says, Moshe, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because of you, there was just a breakdown of Emunah. Because of you, they don't believe in me. Moshe, what are you doing? And Moshe, I've got bad news for you. I know you've sacrificed and you've devoted and you've given up your entire life, your children, your wife, everything. But because you blew it in that moment, I know your life dream, your life mission was to go into Israel. It's not happening. It's not happening. It's unbelievable. His whole life mission, his whole life work, everything he gave up, because in that moment, because of one mistake, unclear even what the mistake was. So we have a lot to say about that. We'll see if we have time today, if not another time. But when you look at the narrative, you're baffled. What did he do wrong? What was so egregious? What was so bad? What could justify punishing him and taking away his life mission? So many hypotheses are offered that the 19th century Italian parish of Shmuel David Luzzato was moved to say, quote, Moshe committed one sin, but the commentators have accused him of 13 or more, each inventing some new one. That was his observation. He did one thing wrong, but we ascribed to him dozens and dozens. Because it's so unclear what he did, we conjecture and we offer countless, countless. The Shari Aram, which is a Sefer on Chumash and Parsha, that collects different mafarshim has 25 different approaches to what Moshe did wrong. 25 approaches to what he might have done wrong. What he might have done wrong. But how do we understand it? How do we understand it? So I would humbly suggest to you that we need to read this parsha like so many of our parshas. There's a theme that permeates the entire parsha. And here the theme I think that permeates the entire parsha, here I think the theme is the notion of a chok. There's a chok in mitzvos and there are chukim in life. There are times that we don't comprehend what we're asked to do, and there are times that we don't comprehend what happens to us. The parsha begins with a chok in mitzvos, the para aduma, and the parsha continues with a chok of life. Ultimately, we can't say with certainty what Moshe did wrong. And even more so, we cannot say with confidence why he wasn't allowed to go in. But it was a chok. Sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes that's the way Hashem has determined it meant to be. That's how he's paskined for us. So just like there's a chok in mitzvos, there are sometimes chukim in life. And just as we're asked to submit and surrender when it comes to our understanding of what we're asked to do, sometimes we're asked to submit and surrender when it comes to our understanding of why things happen. If we feel entitled to understand that we're competing with and we think we're God, 
and we're going to live a very unhappy life because there are things we will never, ever have answers to. We are finite and we are limited. He is omnipotent and He is infinite. We don't and we can't understand the way He runs His world, the way the world works. And if we think that we can live with a confidence or an overconfidence, these two major topics of our parsha juxtaposed one to the other. The Paraduma and the main Mariva, Moshe's punishment, why he wasn't allowed in. We don't understand his mitzvahs and we don't understand his decisions. And with all due respect to the 25 options or attitudes or approaches, we'll never fully comprehend and we shouldn't have confidence in saying what he did wrong. We cannot suffer. There's a concept of overconfidence. The Nobel Prize winner, Professor Kahaneman, who was a cousin of the Rosh Hashiv of Panovich Kahaneman, in his book, talks about overconfidence. I've shared many times, when asked one thing he would change in this world, he said overconfidence, the overconfidence effect. Wars have been launched, financial institutions have collapsed, relationships have been broken, all because of overconfidence. When we think we understand, when we think we know, when we think we're capable of comprehending, when we think we can predict, that overconfidence effect, it destroys. When we think that we're rational, and we're intellectual, and we're intelligent, and we're capable of understanding, it brings an end. And I think that this insight, or this theme of our Parsha as a whole, is really important specifically for our generation. You talk about a Parsha perspective for today. Because we feel entitled to understand. You know why? Because there's so much we understand. Because you can type into your Google, or you could speak into your Siri, and you get terabytes of information at your fingertips, fingertips in milliseconds. So in generations past where you didn't understand and you didn't know, and you didn't even know how to know, and you'd have to go to a library, and you'd have to use some Dewey Decimal System to look up some book, and then you'd read one entry, which would just be one limited piece of information. So you knew, I don't know. You knew there's so much I don't know. But today you feel I know everything, because I have the tools, I have access. I have the technology to know everything is at my fingertips. So we're an arrogant people, an arrogant generation, an arrogant time. I think this also overlaps. I wrote about it last week, that the um, recent study shows Americans' belief in God is at an all-time low. Because the more arrogant you get, the less you see or believe or make contact or connection with God. The more you're connected to God, the more you realize the little you know. It should be that the more you know, the more you realize the little you know, because the more knowledge you realize is out there. So this notion of the theme of our Parsha, both the Para Aduma at the beginning and the Memoriva at the end, Zos Chukas HaTorah. Zos Chukas HaTorah is that the whole Torah is a Chok. Even the mitzvahs that we study, the Tameh mitzvah, we study the reason, and we think we understand, and we see the beauty, and we do. But even then, we need to understand that we barely begin to scratch the surface of comprehension. We have to surrender and submit, we have to forfeit. We have to stop fighting or demanding or expecting to understand. We have to stop being confident and overconfident because it's bringing about so many problems and so many challenges. Zos chukas HaTorah, the whole Torah is a chok. So maybe that's obvious and clear when it comes to the paraduma because of the paradox involved, but it's actually entirely also true for the Torah as a whole, and maybe that's why it's called Zos chukas HaTorah. Perakutes Pasuk Yudalat. So it describes the entire thing, and then the Torah ends. Zos HaTorah, this section. Zos HaTorah, Adam Kiyamaz Baal. Perak Yutes Pasuk Yudalat, 1914. Zos Torah Sa'adam. This is the teaching, the rule when it comes to a person. Zos HaTorah, Adam Kiyamaz Baal. 
When a person expires, when they die in a tent, What is the paraduma trying to purify you from? Contamination with a corpse. The contamination that comes from death. What's an example of that? If a person finds themselves in a tent under a roof together with a corpse, they absorb, they are contaminated. And the paraduma comes to purify them. How long are they contaminated? For seven days. So let's see some of the rules, some of the laws, some of the deeper insight of this halacha. The Gemara Baruchos says, Zosa Torah, Adam ki yamaz ba'ohel. Now the simple understanding is, this is the law, this is the rule of Tumah, if a person expires or dies in a building, in a tent, in a room. However, the Gemara Baruchos and Dafsamach Gimel understands it differently and reads it homiletically. Zosa Torah, Adam ki yamaz ba'ohel, ein divrei Torah miskaimim ela b'mishememis atzmo alehem. Zosa Torah, you want Torah? Adam ki yamaz ba'ohel. Are you willing to die for it? Are you willing to kill yourself for it? What is your drive? What is your appetite for Torah? If you have a casual relationship with Torah, a superficial relationship with Torah, you will distort Torah. You will not really access the depth and the profundity and the truth of Torah. You will not become transformed by Torah. Torah will be this, this casual sort of peripheral relationship that you have. You're familiar with a little bit, but it won't turn you into a Ben Torah or a Bas Torah. What will do it? What do we need to do for it? Adam ki yamaz ba'oel we have to be willing to die for it. We have to kill ourselves over it. We have to drive in an appetite for it. That's what the Gemara Brachos says. Literally die for it. We give our lives for the principles of Torah, but it means, you know, the person who's in medical school is killing themselves. We describe somebody who's working hard. We describe somebody who's studying diligently, that they're killing themselves over their studies. Torah needs that level of you kill yourself. The level of Mindfulness and attention and focus, the level of review. The Taz writes in Rachaim Simon Memzayim. The Taz, the Torah Zov writes, Hatora inimus kayemus of Mishamimus Atzmola, Tahinu Shaosik be pilpul. Umaso matan shatora, Kamashakasov abechukosai telechu. Amenashtu amelum batora. Mashain came bos and shalom to me toch oneg veinim yigim ba, ain hatora miskaimim et salam. We spoke about this on Shavuos when we spoke about making time for Torah. The real Torah. It's not, as we said, superficial or casual. It's not passive. You're not a spectator. I love it that you're all sitting here right now or watching live or later online. I love it. It's beautiful that we're learning together. Mamash means the world to me. I'm inspired by it. And I thank you for it. And I hope you get something out of it. But you're spectators. You're listening passively. Do you open a chumash? Do you read? Do you analyze? Do you think? Do you ask questions? Do you challenge yourself to find answers? One should not be satisfied with a superficial level of understanding. To only be a spectator to Torah, a passive audience to Torah, but to really be involved in pilpal, in asking and analyzing and challenging, and in trying to come to conclusions. Because we'll only acquire it, no pain, no gain. According to the effort is the reward. So what's going on here? So Yaakov Kamenetsky in his Emes Liankov writes the following. Why is this drasha learned specifically in our parsha? Zosa Torah Adam Kiyamas Ba'ol. Ma Kesha Bein Amal HaTorah L'Mitzvah Parah Aduma. What is the connection? It's a cute play on words. Zosa Torah, this is the Torah. Adam Kiyamas Ba'ol. Kill yourself over Torah. Cute, we found the homiletical drasha in our Pasuk. But what's the deeper connection? What's the deeper connection between the laws of Parah Aduma and this notion of diligence 
the demand of the requirement of real focus and effort in Torah learning. We say in Shema, the mitzvah, the origin of the obligation of teaching Torah, Vishinantam Levanacha, teach them to your children. We should have over there said, teach them to your children with seriousness, with effort, with focus. Why here? According to the Taz, says Rav Yaakov, however, now we understand based on the Taz. When you go into Torah and you're struggling to understand Torah, we can't demand or expect to have access to the secrets of Torah. It is the effort that matters, not the result. Again, are we held accountable for what we know? We have drushas that teach us that a person should have clarity. It should be at the, the edge of our lips. We should be fluent in Torah on the one hand. But on the other, it's the effort, not the result. We say at a siyam, Anu amelim, vehem amelim. Anu amelim amekabim b'schar, vehem amelim vehem amekabim b'schar. We make effort, they make effort. We make effort, we're rewarded. They make effort, they're not rewarded. I don't know. They make effort, they're rewarded. We sometimes make effort and we don't feel like we're rewarded. How can we say that so confidently, so conclusively? It's said in the name of many, including the Chavetz Chaim, that the answer is, I think I shared this recently. If you sit trying to solve a math problem, a math equation, and you're unsuccessful, you have scraps of paper and doodles and you try it over and over to solve it, but you're unsuccessful, you didn't solve it. So do you get schar? Are you rewarded? The answer is no, you wasted your time. You didn't write, reach the right answer. You didn't solve the problem. You put three hours and you broke your teeth, you broke your head over trying to solve this math equation and you were unsuccessful, it's a big fail. There's no reward, you got nothing out of it. You failed. But if you sit in a Teisvis, you sit in a Teisvis and a Sivis, you sit in a Rabban al Torah, you're breaking your teeth trying to understand something in Torah, and three hours later you walk away and you say, I, I don't know that I fully understand. I didn't really get what was the question, what was the answer. Are you rewarded? Was the time well spent? The answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. There is reward. Because when it comes to Torah, we shouldn't demand or expect it's not only or all about the comprehension or understanding. It's not about the results, it's about the exercise. It's about the experience. And now that is the connection, says Rabbi Yaakov. Para aduma. We forfeit and we concede our understanding. And that's the attitude one has to bring into Torah and Torah learning that I'm not going to necessarily understand. I'm not going to necessarily understand. Rav Dessler has another interpretation. Rav Dessler, the great Mashkiach of Panovich, he says so beautifully. Ein divrei Torah miskaimim. What's the drasha? What do we learn from our pasuk? Adam ki yamas ba'ohel. Zosat Torah. You want to learn Torah? You have to be willing to die. Do you sit in a tent? The ohel is likened to a... What's an ohel? The base medrash. Yaakov was Yoshev ohalim. He went into several bate medrash. He diversified his rebbeim, his learning. He sat in the shah kolel. He understood and extracted the beauty from so many different approaches. Ohel is the base medrash. Each time Yoshev Ohelim, Yaakov sat in the base medrash. Adam Kiyamas Ba'ohel. You got to kill yourself in the base medrash. You got to kill yourself in the base medrash. So how do you do it? Chazal say, Mishememis Atmo Aleha. Says Rav Dessler, what do you have to kill? If you want to learn Torah, you know what you have to kill? Atmo. So the simple understanding of Atmo is you have to kill yourself. 
Everyone else is going out to party, you've got to stay in the base medrash. Everyone else is going to sleep, you have to stay in the base medrash. Everyone else is going out to play, you have to stay in the base medrash. Everyone says it's good enough, I think I understand, you have to stay in the base medrash. You have to work harder, you have to try harder. You have to try harder. So, but Rav Desu says that's not what it means. Mishememis atzmo. What does the word atzmo mean? My sense of I, my ego. If you really want to learn Torah, you want to have a breakthrough in Torah, you've got to kill the ego. The ego is in the way of understanding Torah. Because when you think it's all about your honor, your glory, when you think it's got to be your way or the highway, when you think that you're going to project or impose your understanding on Hashem's sacred Torah, Kedosha, then you'll never really understand the Torah, La Amito. You're never going to understand the truth of Torah. When you sit down to study Torah, the very first thing you have to do is, Memis Atzmo Aleha. You have to kill your ego. You have to kill your ego. You have to come to Torah as a blank slate. Tabla rasa. You have to clean and wipe down that whiteboard. And you have to say, Torah, I'm here. Now tell me, what's your truth? Hashem, what's your truth? What am I meant to believe? How am I meant to understand? How am I meant to live my life? Memis atzmo. You have to kill the ego, the id, that sense of I. That's what the Piazetzner and others of Hashem Tov writes, Anochi omid ben Hashem Moshe Rabbeinu, after Harsinai says, Hashem spoke the first two Dibros, then you panicked. So then I, Anochi, I stood between you and Hashem, I gave you the rest. But the Baal Shem Tov said, read it differently, homiletically. You know what stands between us and God? If you're struggling to connect, if your davening's not flowing, if you're not finding meaning and purpose, if you're not living with faith and it's not coming easily, then you know what the problem is? Anochi, omeid bin Hashem, obeinechem. Check your Anochi. How's your ego? Are you willing with humility? Are you living like Avram Avinu? Hare Anochi, Afar Ve'efer? Or are you living with an ego, Atzmo? Anochi, it's all about me. Anochi, my way or the highway, my view, what I want, what I need, the way I think it should go, my demands, my expectations. Anochi, Omid Ben Hashem Omenechem. If it's not flowing, it's not working, if you're not connecting, check your Anochi. See if you are pushing too much sense of ego and I. Anochi omei ben Hashem v'nechem. And here too says Rav Dessler, Memis atzmo aleha. You have to be willing to kill that sense of atzmo aleha. You have to kill the sense of atzmo. See, Pesach Frank has another interpretation. Why does it say ohel and not bias? Why ohel? Person has to kill himself in the ohel. So we gave one explanation. Ohel, the imagery of an ohel, should invoke what? A base medrash. In Oel is a euphemism for a study hall. Yaakov, Ishtam Yoshev, Oelim, to sit in the Oel. But Rav Pesach Frank, who was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, the author of the Hartzvi, he says that the Oel, the imagery of the Oel, the tent, should evoke a different imagery. Namely, Chazal coming to remind us that Diras Ha'odam Ba'olam Aze'in El Diras Arai, Bebechinas Oel. What's the difference between a tent and a house? A house has a certain permanence to it. There's walls, there's a roof, there's heating, there's air conditioning, there's furniture. A house implies, a house suggests permanence. What does a tent suggest? Temporary, fleeting, temporal. You go and you camp. I don't mean you glamping. I mean camping. And you put up a tent. And the tent is temporary. You put it up, you take it down, you move it to the next place. It's flimsy, it's vulnerable, it's fragile. It's an oil, it's temporary. So when we leave this world, we should realize the whole world is really a tent. It's not a house. It's not permanent. It's temporary. We were just passing through. 
We were just passing through. The Mishnah Navas, Rabbi Yaakov Omer, HaOlam HaZdam HaLaprozdor, Pefnei HaOlam HaBa. This world is like a hallway. It's an antechamber in front of the world to come. Haskin Atzmecha BeProzdor Kedesh Tikkanis LaTrakman UProzdor Udiras Arai Ve'ena Elam Ma'avar L'Chayev HaKvum BaOlam HaBa. So if we realize we're only here temporarily, everyone knows the famous story of the Chavetz Chaim, who was asked why he lived with such simplicity, with such humility, his mistapik mu'at, so frugal, his home barely had anything. And he said, let me ask you, when you go to the hotel, do you move in and hang up your own pictures and bring your own linen and line it up with your own furniture? The person said, of course not. I said, why not? Because I'm only there temporarily. I'm there for a night or two. I'm there at most for a week. What am I going to move in and decorate it with my own things? I'm only there temporarily. So Chavetz Chaim said, same with me. I'm only here temporarily. I'm only passing through. I'm only here temporarily. Olam HaZadom door. Now, we can indulge and enjoy beautiful and nice things in life. Hashem wants us to, as long as it has a place. And we know this doesn't define us. This is not, in our priorities, what's most important. This can enrich us, can enhance our life, but it doesn't define our life. Our life, what we're living for and towards, is the next world. That's where we're going. That's the place of permanence. Here, passing through. You could also try to stay at a nice hotel. But even when you stay at the nice hotel, you know, I'm only here temporarily. You can make your journey through this world nice, as long as you know, I'm only here temporarily. So says Rasi Pesach Frank, that's the pshat. Adam ki where do we die? Not babayis. Where do we die? Ba'ohel. We die in a tent, we don't die in a home. We don't leave a permanence, because this place is not a world of permanence. This world is not a world of permanence. Don't be overly invested in this world. If you are, it'll be painful when you leave. We've given the talk before, I was recently asked to give it again. What happens when we die? First of all, Baruch Hashem, it hasn't happened to me, so I can't tell you with overconfidence. I can tell you some of our traditions. We'll know when it happens. And there are not a lot of nafkaminas. There's not a lot of practical differences other than saddling our curiosity. But one of the things that we know happens when we die, it comes from our parsha. actually. We'll speak about it. Miriam dies b'neshika, the kiss of death, and Aaron dies b'neshika. Both die through the kiss of death in our parsha, And Moshe asks for and craves to be taken from this world the same way, through a kiss. What does that mean? Yitzhiya's neshama, through a kiss. Neshika, the Ramam and his Mordevuchim explains. The more that a person defines themselves by their body and thinks, I am a body, and I've heard some rumor that I have a soul, but really I am a body, and I pamper the body, and I indulge the body, I'm defined by the body, and that's what I care about, is the body. Oh yeah, by the way, I once heard, and I once even maybe felt that I have a soul, so what happens at the moment of death? Yitzhiya's neshama. When Hashem reaches down and extracts the neshama from that goof, when He reaches down because it's time to pull out the soul that has only temporarily been housed in that instrument, in that vehicle called the body, the soul is in excruciating pain. Because now the soul hovers above looking down at that body and says, whoa, wait a second. That, that, that body that I always looked in the mirror, that body that I thought was me, that I shopped for and that I got many petties for and that I got haircuts for, that I fed and that I gave to drink and that I pursued pleasure of, that body's not the real me? There's a me outside of that? Eternity won't be me the body, but it's going to be me, this soul, without that body? Wow, that's painful. That's excruciating. Both that realization of how much time was wasted in this world and that adjustment and transition to that reality, that that's not me, there's a me independent of that, 
And that's why all of our traditions, again, now's not the time to elaborate, but we don't leave a person alone at the end of their life. We offer companionship. There's someone there always. And that's why we have a Shomer. Somebody's with that soul until the Neshama can have an Aliyah and go up on high, which our tradition says takes place after the Kfura. When the body goes back into the ground from which it came, now the soul is closure. And the soul says, I know now that's not me. I'm going where I'm meant to be. The body permanently is in the ground. Until then, the soul is over the body, pained by its extraction from the body. And therefore, we offer companionship, Shmira, and the Chavr Kaddisha, the Tahara. We treat that body that was the vehicle instrument of the soul, we take care of it, and we send it off pure and clean and dressed like the Kohen Gadol. But what happens to the soul who all of its life says, I'm a soul. I'm housed in this body temporarily. Rav Nachman of Breslov writes, Rav Nachman writes, you know, I'll give you a mushal. I wear a suit and tie for a living. I wear a suit and tie for a living. All the time. To the point that once I came home and took my tie off and changed early in the evening, and one of my children asked me if I got fired. <laughs> was very concerned about me. I wear a suit and tie all the time. So you know that if you wear this uh, straight jacket called a suit and tie, when you come home and you can uh, change into something more comfortable, oh, it's the greatest feeling. I always joke with doctors. They wear pajamas for a living, scrubs. So they have nothing more comfortable to change into when their day is over. So we can change into something more comfortable. So if Nachman said, I can't wait to take off this garment that is the body. I can't wait to take off this suit and tie that is the body. Because the tzaddik, Rav Nachman, understood, I am a soul. This body is a distraction. It needs to eat and drink and sleep and bathe and shower and eliminate food and procreate. This body is just a distraction to the soul. I can't wait to undress from this body and just be a soul. Not that he longed for death. Of course, law we don't glorify death, we live for life. But he couldn't wait to disrobe from the body. The proper attitude is that a body is like clothing. We take good care of it. We cherish it. It's not ours. We're taking care of it for someone else. We appreciate what it did for us, but we're going to take it off. We're going to change out of it. Maybe we'll put on a new body in the future. It depends if you believe in reincarnation or not. In Gilgulam, separate topic altogether. So what's Nashika, Misa's Nashika? Misa's Nashika is, the kiss of death is, when you live life knowing I am a soul, I have a body temporarily. It's a vehicle, it houses the instrument to help me have free will and make choices. Then when the soul is extracted from the body, you're not in excruciating pain. You say, finally, I'm set free. I can soar. I don't have that distraction. I don't have those temptation. I don't have those needs. Ah, finally, nishika. It's bliss. It's glory. It's the ultimate pleasure. It's a nishika. It's the kiss of death. For Miriam, for Aaron, for Moshe Rabbeinu, the Ramah writes, Moranavuchim, it was an ashika. It's the kiss of death. So the degree to which we understand our place in this world, is this permanence? Do we think this is the end all and be all? Is this what it's all about? Is this where we're entirely invested? Do we think that we are a body that has a soul? Do we realize we are a soul that has a body? So says Rav Pesach Frank, says the Hartzvi, that's the Pshat. Adam Kiyamos, not Babayas. Adam Kiyamos, Ba'ohel. Where does death happen? In a tent. This world is temporary. When you live that way, Zosa Torah. That's the Torah. The whole Torah is to know that we're here temporarily. The whole Torah is to know that we're living for the placement of our soul in the world to come. And the body and the material physical world we live in is the way that we express free will. That's how we make choices. That's what will determine our place in that world. But that's the world. 
This is the pros door. That place is the, is the tracklin. We're getting ready to go to the palace, to the world. This is just the antechamber. Pasuk says, Ki holech adam abes olamo, kohelas, naka lashon bayis. Why does it say there, Ki holech adam abes olamo? So if Tzipah Sachran contrasts, here it says, Adam ki yamos ba'ohel. This world is ohel, it's temporary. But ki holech adam abes olamo, bayis, why? Because that's olam haba. Olam haba is a bias. There's a permanence. So that's what Chazal say. Limud gemara nikra uvanisa beisecha. When you learn, it's called building your home. Aidei limud gemara bona haadam laatzmo bias ladur badiras keva. So learning Torah, Chazal called uvanisa beisecha. You build your house because you're building your world to come. Pasuk in Mishlei, we mentioned that last week because the wife of On ben Peles by discouraging him from joining Korach's rebellion, the Chazal attribute to her the Pasuk in Mishlei, Chachmas Nashem, how's the Pasuk end? Bansa, Besa. The wisdom of women, Bansa, it builds, Besa, her home. It means her family's future, her family's world to come, her family's place of permanence are the positive choices they make in this world. Man inu benayim tamidei chachamim. Who are the builders? Tamidei chachamim. So you see, says Pesach Frank, so beautifully, this contrast. When we use the, you see the term, oh, well, that's this world. This world is flimsy. It's temporary. It's fragile. This world is an oh, well, it's a tent. The world to come is a bias. The place of permanence that we're building and leaning towards, that bias, that is the world to come. Moreover, Rabbi Rav Shechter, in volume two of Rav Shechter on the Parsha, also has something to say about this about this drasha. Teaching regarding a person who dies in a tent, anything that enters that tent in the tent becomes Tameh for seven days. A mace is metame in three ways. A corpse contaminates three ways. Maga and Masa and Ohel. Maga means touching. And Masa means carrying. If you carried a corpse, even if you didn't touch the corpse, there was a barrier between you and the corpse. You wore gloves or they were on a stretcher. You also become impure. So by touching, even if it's stationary, by carrying, even if you don't make contact, or ba'ohal, even if you're under the same covering, you're under the same roof. That's o'al hamshacha, if you're under the same roof. The way our shul is constructed, my predecessor was a Kohen, or Brenda was a Kohen, my office just off this main shul, off the Rand Sanctuary, technically is a separate building. It looks like it's attached, but if you look between the doors and you look up, you'll see the sky so that we can have a Levaya in here, and the mace, the Aron, is in that office, because if we were under the same roof, Kohanim couldn't attend. Oal Amshacha, that's the Tumas Oal. The Gemar Yevamos, making a Siyam Thursday, as in two days. The Gemar Yevamos, Tafsamachalaf, cites the opinion of Shimbar Yechai. What about a non-Jewish corpse? Does a non-Jewish corpse contaminate? A Jewish corpse contaminates, that's why a Kohen can't go into a hospital. If there's a morgue, Kohen can't go into the funeral home, a Kohen can't attend a funeral. Because under the same roof, the Kohen will become contaminated. And they're not allowed. We become contaminated. We don't have a paraduma to get out of it. That new Sefer I mentioned last week, that has all these fascinating, obscure ideas on the parsha, has a whole section in this week's parsha. I didn't, I didn't bring it to share it with you because we don't have time. Who was the last generation that had paraduma? Efer para. First base of Mikdash, second base of Mikdash. Tanoim, Amoraim, Rishonim. He brings fascinating sources. Which was the last generation to have actually a, a container of paraduma, of eifer para? So we become contaminated 
we, I mean non-Kohanim, if we are under the same roof as a, as a corpse, but we are not precluded, we don't have a prohibition. Parshas Emor, Emor Va'amarta, Kohanim have a prohibition. So what about, what about non-Jewish corpse? In other words, what if you go to the hospital and the majority of those in the hospital are potentially deceased in the hospital or non-Jews? So, the Gemara Yevama, Samachalav, quotes of Shem Bar Yechai, Kivrei Ovde Kachovim Me'enam Etamim Ba'oel, that the, the graves of non-Jews do not transmit, they do not contaminate through the principle of an oel. Why not? Because Atem Kriyim Adam Ve'ena Ovde Kachovim Kriyim Adam. Pasuk uses the word Adam, different Pasuk, and Jewish people are called Adam, non-Jews are not called Adam. What are we now? Some biased, discriminating, prejudiced religion? We're a group of supremacists, and we look down at non-Jews? Torah uses the term Adam to describe a mace, Tumas Oel. The laws apply only to Mesa Yisrael, and not to Mesa Umas Olam to non-Jews. Now both the Mechaber and the Ramah, just a quick halachic aside, they write the proper practice for Kohanim to also abstain from going to a non-Jewish cemetery. So Mechaber and Ramah, both Paskin, any Kohanim here, then not only should you avoid contamination from a Jewish corpse, but from a non-Jewish as well. One reason for the Chumrah, some suggest, is because maybe among the non-Jews is a Jewish Meshumud. Maybe there's a Jew who gave up their Judaism. You can't. Yisrael Afapishachat Yisrael, you can't. But maybe they think they did. They tried to convert out, so they tried to be buried among the non-Jews. Maybe there's really a Jew buried there. A Kohen should be careful. That is one opinion that is, that is offered. Others suggest that um, really we don't paskin like Rav Shimon. Maybe may say, Akam Armatame Ba'ol. So because really maybe we paskin to be strict, one should be strict. Or a third way of understanding it is that even if they don't technically contaminate, the Kohen is, is encouraged to avoid impurity altogether. So even if technically they don't contaminate Ba'ol, the Kohen shouldn't have his karvas lamis. They shouldn't be near a mace, come close to a mace, and so on. A lot more to say about this halacha. But let's go to the question of, what do you mean that a non-Jew is not called an Adam? Atem krim Adam, ve'inumas olam krim Adam. Really? What, are we such supremacists? We sit with such judgment? Are we so discriminating that we're called an Adam? We rise to the level of being called man, but non-Jews are not man? What are they, animal? What does that mean that they are not? What does that mean that they're not man? Throughout history, non-Jews, I'm reading from Rav Shechter on the Parsha volume 2. Throughout history, non-Jews have been offended by the drush of Atem Kriyam Adam. 1913, Menachem Mendel Bayless was falsely accused of committing the ritual murder of a Christian child who was tried in a notorious court case in Kiev. The well-respected government appointed chief rabbi of Moscow, Rav Yaakov Mazeh, who was universally trained in the practice of law and had a reputation as an eloquent Russian orator, was chosen to defend Bayless from the blood libel. In the end, Bayless was acquitted. Rabbi Mazeh addressed the court, delivering an eight-hour-long detailed speech. Among other points, he explained the Pasuk, V'dam chalalim yishteh, and Israel will drink the blood of the slain, is meant to be understood metaphorically, not literally. Jews, in fact, were Aser, were prohibited from drinking blood. In his presentation, Rav Mazed dealt extensively with the Jewish attitude towards non-Jews, as the Jewish religion, specifically the Talmud, was accused of not respecting the value of non-Jewish blood, of inciting Jew against non-Jew. In this context, Rav Mazed was asked to explain the meaning of the Gemara statement, Atem krim adam krim adam. What does it mean? How could you claim that Jews don't discriminate against non-Jews, don't feel superior to non-Jews? What about this statement? Atem krim adam krim adam which seems to concern non-Jews subhuman. 
The interpretation that he offered of the statement attributed to Rav Meir Shapiro in defense of the Jewish religion has since been quoted by many Rabbanim, including the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Mazah explained this Talmudic quote reveals a very important insight into the nature of the Jewish people, and it is not at all derogatory towards non-Jews. You ready? You listening? In Hebrew, there are four synonyms for man. Can we think of any of them? Ish? Gever? Enosh? And Adam. Ish, Gever, Enosh, and Adam. Of these four synonyms, three of them have a plural form. Ishim, Gvarim, Anashim. What's the plural of Adam? There is none. Adam is the same in the singular, and Adam is the same in the plural. So the Gemara is teaching the principle that when it comes to non-Jews, there's no concept of a united seaboard, as there is with Kla Yisrael. Non-Jews are considered Yechidim, they are individuals and even a group of individuals. But the Jewish people is a sense of solidarity and a shared responsibility. The fate of a single Jew is borne by every Jew. Rav Mazet told the judge how Rav Meir Shapiro, then the Gorov of Galina, Poland, sent a letter to him in Moscow, urging him to defend Bayless in Kiev. If a non-Jew were accused of a similar crime was standing trial in a distant country, would people in other countries take a personal interest in him? Certainly not. There is no such connection between people of different countries. So that is how Rav Mazeh understood, quoting from Meir Shapiro, that this is not disparaging or superior or discriminating against the non-Jew. We're called Adam and non-Jews are not because of the four terms for man, Adam has no plural. And what it means is we are all united. We are solid. We have a solidarity one with the other. We're unified. We're one people. We are one body made up of different organs. And the evidence, said Bayless, is this trial itself. A non-Jew is put on trial. Every Italian, every German, every Puerto Rican, every whatever culture, ethnicity, people, religion, they don't show up. But one Jew is put on trial. Jews around the world are concerned for their fate. Jews around the world are concerned for their fate. They follow the trial like it's Johnny Depp. Jews around the world. Not pop culture following the trial for their own entertainment. They follow the trial because it's as if their own fate all together. So that's how he answered, that's how he explained what it means to be an Adam, and that is what it means to the Jewish people. That's what it means to the Jewish people. And Rav Shechter goes on, indeed the Gemara Nazar teaches that Nazirus only applies to one who belongs to a tzibor, not to a non-Jew, who would not only be accepting Nazirus by himself as an individual. So a non-Jew can't become a Nazir, only a Jew. A non-Jew is not subject to the dinim of Tumah, or dinim of Nazirus. The source of this distinction is the Pasuk, because they cut themselves off from the kahal. So a non-Jew is never part of a kahal. Non-Jews can have a connection, a bond, but they don't have a unity, an integration, a solidarity, the way Jewish people really are all made up. We are all part of one united entity. In truth, this assessment is correct. It is in accordance with the halacha principle, a shared communal accountability for mitzvahs and averas of each individual. As we've seen, both the individual Jew and the tzibah are called Adam. The application of this term to Jewish people implies an equality between the individual and the collective, and the actions of the individual are indicative of the rest of the people, just as the welfare of each individual becomes the responsibility of the tzibur. It is not only in the eyes of halacha that all Jews combine to form a singular entity, but also in the eyes of non-Jews who treat us that way as well. Non-Jews practice their hate against all Jews because of one Jew, because they too implicitly see us as intertwined. They too implicitly see us as having one destiny, as being shared all together as one. Okay, moving along. Perechav, Pesach, Aleph. 
Miriam dies there and Miriam is buried there. And what happens? There's no water. So they rise against Moshe and Aaron. We're thirsty. We're tired. There's no water. How could you do this? What made them do this? What is the connection? The placement of Miriam's death is perfectly placed and positioned between the juxtaposition of what comes after and what comes before. Namely, what comes after is the complaint about the water. Miriam Mariva happened, why? Because the Be'er Miriam was in her merit. We no longer had the water in her merit. They therefore went thirsty. And that led to that precipitated the story of May Mariva. What comes before? Para Aduma. Why? The Gemara Moed Chavches tells us because likening Misas Tzadikim to Karbonos. Para Aduma is the Karbon, just like Karbonos or Machaper, just like the Para Aduma purifies and atones, so to the death of Tzadikim. But Para Aduma is not the quintessential Karbon. If you really wanted to convey a teaching that just like sacrifices Karbonos or Machaper, so to the death of Tzadikim, so quote the Karbon Ola. Why are you invoking the para aduma? Why the para aduma? So the Gedaya Eisman, who's Mashkiach of Kol Torah, says, is like Achtov. The Davka Smicha Zosator the para aduma shkain balam den limush yefshalumud mishar korbanos para aduma mahusihuka gzera milfanai in lechorushus laharachala. You know, often the death of tzaddikim, you sit and you observe and you say, I don't understand. How could it be, my friend? was a tzaddik. He died young. He left orphans. He was a tzaddik. Sometimes it seems like the people taken the most prematurely, terror events in Israel, or from horrific illnesses here, they were the biggest tzaddikim. If a Kaddish Baruch has a quota, he's got a meat of glioblastomas, we can make some suggestions who we should take. We have some suggestions of wicked people in the world. It sometimes seems like and feels like he takes the biggest tzaddikim. So you look and you say to yourself, how? And why? And where is he? And nothing makes sense. So that's why it's likened to paraduma. Just like korbanat mechaper, misa tzaddikim is mechaper. Because implicit with every misa of a tzaddik is the submission that I don't understand. The tzaddik should live the longest. Tzaddik should have the greatest health. The Tzaddik should be the most prosperous. How does it make sense? How does it make sense? So the teaching was specifically through Paraduma and not a Karban Ola or a Karban Chattas or a Karban Ashram. Because Paraduma is all about forfeiting our understanding. And often, too often, the Misa Tzaddik includes a forfeiting of our understanding. And that's why it's connected. That's why it's connected. Lahaya Mayam Laida, there was no water for the people, and they. Complained. Rashi says, Miriam. All 40 years, it was in the merit of Miriam. The Gemara Tainus Taftes tells us, What did they drink from the rest of their time in the desert? If it dried up and they were complaining and the water came out of that rock temporarily, where was the water the rest of their time in the desert? So the Gemara Tainus tells us, God turned off the water when Miriam died, but then he turned it back on. The same source of water throughout their journey in the desert was restored and was returned. So the Marsha wonders why did he turn it off? If he was going to just turn it back on, then what was the point of turning it off? 
And not only by turning it off, did he turn it off gratuitously for a few moments, what happened as a result of turning it off? Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get into Eretz Yisrael. If Moshe Rabbeinu had gone into Eretz Yisrael, Moshiach would have come. We would have settled the land the way it was meant to be. There would have been a coming together of Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, Torah Yisrael. All of history, all of destiny, everything changed because he turned off the spigot. He turned off the water for a moment. What was the point? What was the point? It led to the complaint about the water and the rock instead of speaking to the rock and the punishment of Moshe. What was the point? So the answer is to pause for a moment to give Hakaras Atov to Miriam, it was all worth it. The risk of how Moshe would respond and ultimately the punishment he endured and ultimately the pivoting of our whole destiny was all worth it to pause for that moment to say thank you to Miriam. Because even though water was going to come back on, you don't keep going. When someone leaves this world and they made a difference to you, life doesn't continue as normal. You stop and you pause. You live without. You recognize the gift and the kindness and and what they gave you. You don't just keep going. You don't just continue. But you stop and you pause. You stop and you pause like we have to do now, even though there's so much more. Ya Allah, hemante bilak tisheni. But Yivka, why they cry? I'll tell you one last one, because I love it. One last insight by the Megid Yosef of Yosef Sarotskin. Oh. Rashi says, Vayivku is Aaron. Aaron dies later in the Pasha. We lose Miriam and Aaron. It's as if we don't even, we read Chukas every year, but it's as if every year I read Chukas and I'm like shocked and stunned. Oh my gosh, Miriam died, Aaron died. We're only in Bamidbar, we're not even up to Dvarim. How could it be the rest of Chumash is without Miriam, without Aaron? doesn't matter how many times you learn chukas. It feels like it seems like it comes out of nowhere. What do you mean they died? So we didn't just lose Miriam, we lose Aaron. They cried for Aaron 30 days. Kol, everybody. Says Rashi, who's all? Kol. Men and women. Aaron was the greatest marriage counselor, greatest marriage therapist in the world. Aaron, this is Shalom, when Aaron was there, through who Aaron was and how Aaron lived, but also through the counseling that he offered, he was able to maintain and preserve shalom bias between husband and wife. So, vayivku kol Yisrael, men and women, husbands and wives, everyone cried because of the shalom bias that Aaron had given them. Now, when it came to Misa's Moshe, it says vayivku b'nei Yisrael. It doesn't say kol. It doesn't say everyone. And there Rashi says, rak hascharem bachu, only the men cried. The women didn't appreciate Moshe. The women weren't taken out of Egypt, weren't given the Torah. They didn't appreciate Moshe. How could it be? When it came to Aaron, men and women cried. Kol basis. When it came to Moshe, only the men. So the Gurari, the Ma'ara wonders, Sof, Sof, Hayam Moshe, Gam, the Farnes, Kol Yisrael. It was through the merit of Moshe that they were alive. Gam Anashem, Hayam, the Farnes. The women too were sustained. They too were given shelter and food. Why didn't the women cry when it came to Moshe? So says the Megid Yosef, Sorry, still the Medrash says that livelihood, Parnassah, is a kambadan, this is a traditional viewpoint, a traditional viewpoint, is the husband, the man is the breadwinner, the man is the responsibility, Nachrais, earning a Parnassah is a mitzvah, and a man has to learn and take and practice Achrayis. It's responsible to take care of a family. So says 
Rav Sarotskin, Linira, Shalisha, Shalombayas, Choshev Yosem Parnasa. Aaron gave Shalombayas, Moshe gave wealth and prosperity. They cried more for Aaron than for Moshe. You know why? Because the women understood. You know what's more important? You know what's more valuable? You know what they would miss more? And they cried for more? Shalom bias over Parnasa. Nisabul Yosar al Aaron me al Moshe. We see Rotsi Isha Bekabu Tiflus me Azarakab me Prishus Isha Madifa Shabaliya Ima Afshem me Parnasa Bedochak. Yosem me Shabaliya is Asha be Mirchakim. A woman, the Chazal note, again, you could debate times have changed, but Rav Salvechik at least felt these were axiomatic ontological truths that a woman would rather her husband be around and have less than be on the road away and have more. Her priorities are right, that shalom bias and companionship trump or supersede wealth and prosperity. So therefore the women cried for Aaron more than they cried for Moshe because they understood and they got that. Maybe the men, he doesn't say this explicitly, but the inverse would be, the men cried more for Moshe than for Aaron because Parnassah, either it was their responsibility at the breadwinner or because they valued it incorrectly more, whichever way, a fascinating insight we will pick up. So tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meeting with Silas Hashem and living with Amuna are streamed online only. You can watch live at 8.15 and 8.45 tomorrow night behind the Bima. And uh, we'll pick up Amir Tashem next week. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.